0: This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be utterly obliterated by my uh, co-host, John Siracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. This is episode number 35, and we'd like to say thanks to our two sponsors, HelpSpot.com and Rackspace. We'll tell you more about them as we go on. We also want to mention that bandwidth for this show is provided by midas green tech virtual private servers submerged in oil get free bandwidth today midas com slash five by five how are you john Syracuse?
1: you keep changing the tagline it's it's nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about the complaining aspect is supposed to emphasize the pettiness and ridiculousness of you know
0: but you obliterate too
1: no, that, that makes it sound like I'm uh, taking down these things. But you are. But I am totally not. I am mostly just whining and complaining. That's why the word complaining is so essential in this tagline.
0: Otherwise, otherwise it,
1: it sounds too earnest. No, no. I, I mean, it, you can do that occasionally as long as it's clear that what you're doing is further compounding the ridiculousness of the statement. But if it's repeated show after show, it it's like, that. Is that the tagline? I've only listened to three episodes and they always say obliterated. So you got to like, you got to
0: balance it. Have I said obliterated ever before?
1: Oh, I don't know. Lots lots of synonyms for that, but I think you have said obliterated a few times before. I don't know. You the point is mix in complaint. Mix in the the verbatim
0: I will slogan I, ap- I apologize. March. I'm sorry.
1: It's not, you know. I understand. guess the show's over now. Yeah, well. This is the follow-up segment, so <laughs>
0: that's where we <laughs>
1: issue corrections and and right. fact, in we're fact,
0: we're following up for the show that hasn't really even happened yet.
1: Oh, it's happening now. <laughs>
0: You're soaking in it. Oh, uh, nice. Nice. So
1: the number one, the number one follow-up.
0: Wow, you're on fire
1: today, John. The number one follow-up I have is for you. It's not even for me. Did you read this one? I maybe. It was about something that you talked about that I, I didn't comment on because I didn't know anything about it. But we were talking about Lucas and his stuff that he does to Star Wars. God. Okay. Uh, and you brought up an analogy. Uh, by way of explaining that what Lucas was doing was not what this other person was doing. I think that was the point, uh, but it was about the clockwork orange uh, novel.
0: Yes. Anthony Burgess.
1: Yes. And you got a couple of corrections from people pointing out
0: final, final uh, chapter.
1: Yeah. Do you want to do this correction? But you know more about the back. No, I tell
0: like, me, tell me what the complaint is and then I will, I'll respond. So I think what you said was that he
1: added these chapters, they added a final chapter to the novel after the fact, uh, and that either was or wasn't like what George Lucas was doing. Uh, but in fact, the, the couple people who wrote in said that that final chapter was in the original and, and then, then it, it was, was taken moved, out. Yeah, it was removed from the versions that were sent to certain countries and then right. put back in.
0: Right. That's correct. I don't so, like that version of history and I tell it my own way. All right. Well, I just wanted to point out that you did actually get a follow-up correction. I did. And that is true. And, and the story goes that he did write the chapter... And as you mentioned, it was included, and this is something I knew a lot about, uh, it was included, as you mentioned, to a, depending on where. So I'm pretty sure that American audiences uh, never saw that chapter until a re-release of the book later. And perhaps the UK audiences did see it, or maybe I have that backwards. Anyway, the point is, like you said, different different publishers and different countries saw different versions of, of that. Some were, I'm sorry if I'm, I'm ruining the book, uh, where Alex, uh, is, um, it, it ends with the, the statement, I was cured. All right. Uh, and then, um, uh, in other ones, there's a whole additional chapter that shows Alex coming back home and seeing Pete, Georgie, and Dim doing different things. And, uh, anyway, um, and, and maybe him starting over with a new crew or that kind of, anyway, I having, having, uh, I saw the movie first. And I read the book after. Uh, and I did both of those things at about age 16 or 17. Um, and, uh, and I remember reading the last chapter. And at first I thought, oh, that was, that was kind of neat. And then later on thinking, you know, it's, it, it, it is a little bit more interesting if you leave that off. It doesn't quite tie things up as well. And that's more like life. So in my mind, it's almost like uh, as you as as you're fond of saying, and we can pretend we never there was no Godfather three. Uh, I, I to me that that last chapter is the, more like the Godfather three than it is like George Lucas coming back in and, and and tweaking things that shouldn't have been tweaked because in fact it was not written later; it was written originally and just withheld. So there you go. All right, I think that clarifies your intent a little bit. Okay.
1: Uh, just right before we get off the Star Wars topic, there was one more, uh, reader letter from Aaron Pressman. He said, uh, that he heard me say that no one should ever have the prequels in their house if they can help it. Right. I agree. And, and he says, so I'm guessing you don't have a son aged six to 12. Well, in fact, I do have a son aged six to 12. Uh, and he's, he's pointing out that his son watches the prequels and likes them and he can't dissuade him from the idea that the prequels are good. Yeah. And can't get them to like the older movies, so on and so forth. He made a very important mistake, which was first acknowledging the existence of the prequels. that was bad, but eventually you can 't help that because your kids talk to their friends. but never show your children the prequels like if, even if you have them in the house, do not show them to your children. My, my kids have never seen the prequels, and you know it, it just solves that problem entirely. they watch They watch the original three Star Wars movies when they want to watch Star Wars, and that is Star Wars to them. I do let my son watch the Clone Wars cartoon on TV because it's computer animated and a cartoon. You know, it's kind of like a spinoff type series. And it is vaguely related to the the prequels and it does have Gungans in it and stuff. But first of all, that cartoon is better than any of the prequels movies, which is a low bar, I admit. But, you know, it's a kid show, whatever. Although some adults seem to like the the things. Mm. And second, it satisfies his need to have common ground with his friends to talk about clone troopers and stuff like that because they exist in the cartoon thing. But no, never show your children the prequels. It's just... It's not right. So I have not shown it to them. I don't I'm assuming eventually when he's an adult, he will see them or something, but it'll be too late by that. I, I, what I'm trying to do is imprint him like baby birds are imprinted with their mother birds, you know, face imprint him with the correct Star Wars movies. Uh, I believe I've already done that. But still has not seen the prequels. So that, that's my advice. Do not show your children the prequels ever.
0: So in the uh, in the Syracuse house, there are two rules, it seems like three rules. And maybe only three rules. The first rule is uh, no prequels. The second rule is no Godfather 3. And the third one is no commercials. I could live there. There are many more rules, but you've got some good ones there. Keep your office fastidious.
1: Yeah. My four-year-old knows how to skip commercials with the TiVo now. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah, And they have no desire to see them. You would think sometimes like, they'd be like, oh, I want to see that. That commercial looks fun and interesting. No, they just want to get back to their show. I have not taught them Select Play, Select 30 Select yet. People can Google that if they care. Uh, One more... Oh, I actually got several more things to follow up. So this is is one more reader feedback thing. Andrew Martin wrote in uh, uh, to talk about when we were discussing the home screen on the iPad. Remember that? Like how it's a a big grid of icons and I was disappointed that they didn't do something more interesting with it. Yes. And I imagined in my fictional... Steve Jobs' universe that he was the one who saw a bunch of alternatives and said, let me just do a grid of icon that works fine on the phone, blah, blah, blah. Well, he wrote in to remind me that the tablet project was first, which I knew. And uh, he extends that information to say, therefore, the interface that was on the iPhone actually came from the iPad. And I don't think we can conclude that. We know that the tablet came first because Steve Jobs has said so. And because it was a Safari pad rumors way back when, like it's acknowledged from official sources that they were working on a tablet first, even though the phone shipped first. We don't know what that tablet looked like and whether it had springboard on it, whether the home screen was exactly the same, so on and so forth. So I don't think just because the tablet was developed first, we can assume that the iPhone's grid of icons was derived from the iPad. Uh, And even if it was, it doesn't matter what path the grid of icons took to get to the iPhone. When it came time to do the iPad, Like, there's a reason they didn't release... The safari pad or the things they had before and i don't think all the reasons are 100 hardware that you know they didn't think it was ready for prime time after the phone came out and they revved that os a few times and got it all nailed down and everything then they said okay now we know how to do a tablet right at that point you know it's not it's not as if you're beholden to what you did before and say oh now we have to release like say the ipad did have a big grade of icons way back when you're not now you don't have to release it with the same grid of icons because you've learned so much more from the phone you could do something different so it was worth mentioning when we were discussing that, hmm. uh, but I, I did want to say that yeah, I knew about that and it didn't, doesn't change how I look at that situation. Right. Uh, the never never ending markdown follow up. I this is my own fault because I have like a little paragraph here on, on markdown follow up and I keep skipping parts of it. So I think and, this is and the last one.
0: John Gruber apparently did he even um, did he even we don't know did he even he watch? didn't even, listen, he didn't he didn't even listen. listen to the
1: episode. He's a very very busy man. Yes. Yeah. You know he needs a lot of sleep. <laughs>
0: Okay. Uh, I don't. I don't know if
1: you listen to it. I don't. I don't think it's interesting enough for him to bring up on his show. Okay. Uh, I. I agree with that assessment, but of course I do think he should listen to every episode of my show. Of course. So uh, I already did corrections about how I misspoke about what turns things bold and italic, and the main the main point I had on this thing, which I keep skipping over, was that uh, Markdown doesn't put out B and I tags. It does M and strong tags for emphasis and strong. You know, it's it's using the old style. Remember when everyone hated BNI tags? This is more a thing for the big web show. We could talk about with Zeldman, but uh, no one liked BNI tags because they were presentation tags. They were saying, you're telling the thing to make the text bold, but you're supposed to use semantic markup that says, what does it mean? Don't tell me what it's supposed to look like. I'll I, use thought, I thought about
0: that while you were talking. Yeah, yeah. And I, I said, you know what? It, nobody cares. It's not worth it. Well,
1: no, no one cares anymore, but remember, as, as Merlin so he's the great word that he chose it, the Talmudic debates about BNI <laughs> tags and, and yeah. the wrong. I remember those days, uh, but yeah, Markdown is definitely of that era, and so is John Gruber for that matter. And, right. You know, and 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 I, and I assume you, were, you know, cut our web teeth during the, sure. the Wasp web standards. You know, yeah, the, well, the people who know who's Elmer. Good is. old days, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it still emits M and strong instead of B and I, and me saying that it emits B and I it was just sacrilegious. Uh, what else do we have? What else you got? Uh, so that's it for the follow up, and then I have. A mini topic before we dive back into the Windows 8 stuff, which I'm not sure if people liked or didn't like. We didn't get a lot of complaints. We got almost no feedback, really. Yeah, I take that as a good sign because when people are like, oh, stop talking about, you know, whatever, programming or whatever they don't like. Uh, but if no one says anything, I think it's a thumbs up. Silence means consent. Uh, but before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about Netflix and Quickster. So this is a case where the news, when did that happen, on Monday or Sunday? Maybe Friday. But the news okay. came in and every other show gets a chance to talk about it before I do because I happen to be on a Friday. Sometimes it works in my favor. Like I'm the first one to get it if something happens on a Thursday. But in this case, it happened early in the week. So I figured by the time I got to talk about it, everyone else would have covered everything. And they, and they pretty much did. I was also looking around the web to see if I could find like you know, the, everyone has editorials on the topic, but here's what I think about it, blah, blah. blah. And I, Eventually, I assume, one of those editorials will contain pretty much my opinion, 100%. Mm. Uh, they, I think most of them covered a lot of the bases that I want to talk about, but there was one theory that I didn't see expressed explicitly in a lot of places. Now, it was the idea of, like, why, why does... Well, two things. Why? One, th- th- my main complaint about this entire PR apology thing that, that Netflix put out was what, what I always hate about corporate communications. When when I feel like, even though if it uses plain language and everything, which Gruber seems to like, when I think what they're what they're writing in their PR does not reflect the real motivations for the action, or only partially reflects them. That that's what I don't like, or or you know, intentionally ignores an obvious point, you know, something like that. So when they wrote this PR, like, here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. I didn't believe, I didn't find it believable that the reasons they stated for why they were doing it were the reasons. Uh, Not 100%. Now, I do believe that they're afraid that streaming was going to be, that there were, they wouldn't be blindsided. They wouldn't be stuck as those DVDs by mail guys and they would would not, right? I 100% believe that. But then it's like, all right, so then what do you do about it? We decided to do this about it. And that's where I feel like there was a gap in them explaining the motivations. Like, okay, so you decided to do this. And you're not stupid. You must realize, you know, you're not that stupid. You must realize how that makes experience worse for your customers. So there has to be some counterbalance to that. And the counterbalance isn't, like you can say, we're afraid of, uh, of being pigeonholed. Therefore, we're going to do this thing to make our customer experience worse. No, we're afraid of being pigeonholed. Therefore, we're going to do this thing, which helps us in unsaid way X that we're not going to tell you and hurts you in this other way that we'll, we'll try to, you know, <laughs> we'll really try to downplay. Better. Right. right. So I, I really hate corporate communications where they don't tell you or they, you know, it's not like they're lying to you about the motivation. This is an error of omission. You know, the worst ones are where they just outright lie and say, we're doing this because we think it provides the best experience for customers. I don't think they said that, <laughs> you know, they didn't explain why they were doing this bad thing, but they didn't try to dress it up and say, this is going to be awesome for customers. You know, uh, so I'm trying to think about it, and a lot of other people are trying to go, well, what, you know, why are they doing this? They must see the downsides. There must be some upside that helps them towards their stated goal of not, you know, of being around in the future. Uh, And I saw a couple of good theories. Uh, My one theory that I didn't see is kind of vague. And that's probably why I didn't see it because if you can't support it very well, no use writing it up. Was that having the DVD business, I've actually seen the opposite of this theory. uh, But anyway, having the DVD business is an impediment to them negotiating their streaming contracts. I've heard people say that it's an advantage. They can use it as a stick to say, you know, well, fine, if you don't give a stream, we're just going to buy your DVDs and you can't stop us from that because of the first sale doctrine. So tough luck. Yeah. I think having the DVD business tied to them was hurting them in negotiations. Like it's it's a distraction. It was it was something that, that the other companies didn't like that they did. And that, you know, that, that this is the one theory I did read is that the streaming people would say, well, look at all those DVD-only subscribers you have. We want to count them in your per-user usage fees or whatever for streaming. they say, well, don't count them because they never stream. So they separate them off and don't have to count them. But I just think having that there, like having your guy go in to negotiate streaming and having the other person on the other side of the table constantly asking you about and telling you, you know, asking you questions about and throwing back in your face this DVD thing, just separate it. Say, so we are a streaming-only company. We're only going to negotiate streaming. And I think their long-term goal is to get a situation in which legally practically in all possible ways the other guy on the other side of the table can't say anything about the dvd business he'd say well what about oh no that's not even us you know even if we wanted to do it we love to do, we would love to do exactly what you say about the dvd business but we can't because legally we have no control over them they're a separate entity there's no you know spin them off basically cut cut ties do a, do a complete separation so that when they negotiate they negotiate only in terms of streaming the dvd stuff is not is it is not a distraction. And if that's the case, I find it weird they
0: didn't just say that, you know? Well, like, yeah. just say, we... But, that, like, but that's, a, that's the way these things, they're so opaque and obtuse that you, you just, you never get the, the real well, deal. This, you never get a,
1: it. Corporate culture is such that you would never explain that. Like, that's a that's an internal strategy that you'd only discuss internally. and You would never tell customers, like, we have to get rid of the DVD thing because it's impairing our ability to negotiate for streaming contracts for reasons X, Y, and Z. Because that you'd be showing your hand to the people you 're negotiating with and b that's like that's like internal stuff right but it's, it still bothers me when when you have to make a, a public relations announcement and you can 't tell them the real reason you're doing it uh, of course there's always the the really cynical thing, which is they 're just really dumb and making horrible mistakes like h p <laughs> you know, don't spend too long thinking about the motivation and some secret reason, really they 're just really dumb and making horrible mistakes, yeah. uh, because when you're afraid you can 't make horrible mistakes. So they're kind of admitting they're afraid, like we are afraid of being, you know, marginalized. And look, here's a horrible mistake in response to that fear. All right. Uh, I don't. Oh, and and the other thing on Quickstar, since everyone gave their little personal, like what they're doing with Netflix and Quickstar, I think you you said that you uh, were still getting both, right?
0: Uh, No, I I am only getting the Netflix streaming. We switched to that a while ago. Uh, Before the price change? Oh, well before the price change. Oh, well Thanks. before the price change. As soon as, to be honest, you know what? You know what? I think I switched over to it was um, probably about when did they start offering it? About three years ago, I think we switched about a, a, within the last uh, within the last two years we did it. I'm trying to remember when they actually made the switch, but it was, um, you know, we we were just uh, the boy was about. I guess he was about. Two, and I just we just didn't have time to watch the movies, and it was like everyone else. We had a couple of these DVDs sitting here, and uh, and I said, you know, it, it'd probably be much easier, especially when the Apple TV support for it became so great, uh, that it, it was just a no brainer, and especially with all the, the kids' stuff that's there. There were tons of shows that we liked that we thought he would like, and he did like that. Uh, it, and you know, it's so easy with the Apple interface. I have two Apple TVs. Three actually, if you include the old generation model, uh, but two of the little black ones. I got one in here in the in, in the office studio, and I've got another one out in the, the family room, and uh, it's great. And you can watch Netflix on all of them at the same time. So yeah, so I haven't I haven't received a Netflix DVD in a, in a long time.
1: I, I can't remember if it was Gruber or Merlin who was uh, who pinpointed the Netflix disc anti pattern, where if you don't have careful queue management, the things that end up at the top of your queue are the movies that you think you ought to see, but yeah, you, aren't ever, you aren't ever actually motivated to see. That, that was stalls, John, yeah. That, that stalls the queue. That is definitely... <laughs> that's you know, part of
0: their... That's part of... They They rely on that.
1: Yeah, that, that... Well, I don't know if they rely on it or not. I mean, but it, it happens, you know, because you get, you get a nice, good flow through the queue, and then, like, you just... Mismanagement leads to... And, and the bunch of movies... Are the, the real... The psychology at work there is that... I find this, and I think other people find this too, you don't want to return a movie you haven't seen because then you think you wasted your time. It's the the fallacy of sunk costs. In reality, what you should just do is return the thing and get your queue moving again. But you're like, ah, but, but I'm not going to get it again. Like you feel obligated to not return until you watch it, which is stupid, but that's what people do. I, I'm in that situation right now. I have, I'm on the one disc and then streaming plan. And that one disc has been up there for, for weeks because it was an unmanaged top of the queue thing where I didn't realize that was the top of the queue. And, and, you know, I think it was like put there by my wife and she's not watching it. and I'm not watching it. So, uh, But yeah, I, I am still a disc and streaming thing. And this, this, this is why people are pissed about... The people who are still disc and streaming are pissed about this thing is that, as I think a group pointed out as well, the streaming stuff's just not there yet. Like, my, my movie watching as a person with kids and a job and everything is that I watch movie review shows or read movie reviews online. And when I see a current movie that, that looks like it has good reviews that I think I might want to see, rather than going to the movie theater to see it, I throw it on my Netflix queue because Netflix nicely lets you add movies to your queue even when they're just still in a theater. So you just save it and then when it becomes available, we'll go there, right? Yeah. And then, you know, a couple of months later when it's available on Blu-ray or DVD, Blu-ray most of the time for me now, it comes to your house and you get to watch it. The alternative is add it to your Netflix queue when it's in theater and then wait four and a half years. Maybe if you're lucky, you get to see it on streaming. Maybe six years or 10 years. Or God knows how it may never appear on streaming. And by the time it does, you you're, you're not participating in the culture. Like, right everyone else is watching this great movie that you really want to see like the latest Cohen brothers movie and you can't get to the theater to see it so you're going to wait for it to come on streaming you'll be waiting a long time like you know a decade later you're like oh, i finally saw a serious man great you know, movie. you're
0: describing my life right now yeah so
1: that, that's why i'm never leaving the disc stuff until the streaming has a chance to come close to it i also like the fact that you can get blu-ray which is the highest quality thing you can usually download If you're downloading illegally, you can get Blu-ray rips, but that's just, you know, a disembodied version of a Blu-ray. So, so yeah, I I will continue to get the discs because I want to see first-run movies in a somewhat reasonable and timely fashion. And uh, I don't really blame Netflix for the fact that they can't get the people to agree to the streaming contracts It's the media companies. That's my final point on the Netflix thing. I almost wrote a little thing about it because I haven't written anything for the web in ages. So I, I thought maybe I should write this, but it seemed too obvious. So I'll just chuck it out here in a couple sentences. Uh, this Netflix Quixote thing is like uh, another example of within the TV, I don't know, industry business companies that people love can't seem to stay in business. TiVo and Netflix are two examples. People loved TiVo. People loved Netflix. It's like, well, great, you're giving the customers what they want. These, these are the shining stars as far as the consumers are concerned of this industry, right? And these companies that people love just can't seem to get it together. They're in financial trouble all the time. They're forced to do things that are bad for customers. They start, TiVo's putting their ads all over the things. Their devices is getting slower. Netflix is constantly, you know, doing things that people don't like and splitting their business. And, you know, and when companies that people love can't stay in, in you know, can't stay in business or can't, can't thrive and grow the way we think they should based on how much consumers like their products, that's a sign of an unhealthy market. That's a sign of too much power concentrated in mm. too, too few places. The content owners, the cable companies, all the powers that are aligned against TiVo and Netflix are aligned against them because they're incumbents with a, you know, a huge amount of power over the pipes to your house, over ownership of the content or the, you know relationships with the content owners. And they are leveraging that advantage the same way Microsoft leveraged, leveraged their ownership of the desktop to make things worse for consumers but better for them. So this, I would say the television industry seems to be the most sick, the most you know, industry that has the most problems, movies, television, you know, combined. You know, music had a similar problem, but was sort of forced into the future by Apple. And here's an example of like, this would be as if iTunes came along and people loved it, but iTunes was crushed under the thumb of big music. Luckily, the music companies were, didn't have as much power as the, the TV and movie industry seemed to. And, and you know, the, the industry got crushed by iTunes instead. But this is an example where the structure of the market is so horribly lopsided that these great companies just can't just can't get out. You know, TiVo is being crushed by the stupid set-top boxes that are, that are all worse than TiVo. And meanwhile, TiVo's boxes are getting worse on top of that. Right. So, you know, they're meeting in the middle. You know, where TiVo will get really bad. The other ones will get kind of mediocre and then everyone will have mediocre boxes. And Netflix, we all want. We know what we all want from Netflix. Give me the movies. Like, if they could come out exactly at the same time, that's what consumers, if you ask them, hey, would you like it if you could get a high-definition streaming version of a first-run movie for a subscription price? And maybe it would be more expensive than it is now. Would you like that? People say, yeah. Every movie that comes out, yes. Every TV show that comes out, yes. I don't, I don't want to have to know when something is airing on a channel. I don't want to have to subscribe to a giant package of channels. I want, you know, it, maybe that can be available, but uh, I, I would rather see them, I, I'd rather have more of an a la carte selection and I would like them in real time. Like, we know what consumers want, but the industry is just not set up to allow that. To some degree, as I think I've pointed out before, the cost structure, uh, the way it is now, is the thing that funds the shows of minority interest. So you wouldn't get to see all these cool shows that you like if they weren't subsidized by all the people paying for, like, local sports or, you know, whatever other channels they get. Uh, but there, there has to be a balance. And right now the balance is way on the side of the content owners and the cable companies and, and you know, the movie industry, and it's against consumers. And it's crushing uh, or mutating or damaging the companies that we all love in this industry. Hmm. So that's my further depressing take on
0: the world of television. This reminds me of the early episodes where whenever we were done, I would feel like I want to just cry and take a nap.
1: Yeah, I can't think of an industry that's worse than this in this realm. Because music seems to be getting better. We even got to the point where we got rid of DRM books. Books is not great, but it's better. Like nowadays when a new book comes out, I can be pretty sure I can get a Kindle version of it, you know? Whereas now when a movie comes out, I, I just assume there's, I will not see a streaming version of that movie in my lifetime, you know. Maybe if you're lucky, you know, a couple of years from now it'll come out, but it depends on what deals. And maybe it'll be on streaming for a little while, but then won't be in the back. Forget about the back catalog. You can't find that either. Will I be able to even buy an HD version? Will I have to pirate it? It's just, you know, it's ridiculous.
0: Do you, do you have um Do you have the Apple TV?
1: i am waiting for version 3. Version 1, no way in hell I was going to buy version 2. I took a wait and see and then I came around to on version 2 thinking that's better than my current Netflix box because Netflix on TiVo is so horrendous. It's almost unusable. Even though, as I said before, I used to do TiVo through Netflix just because it was a device that was on all the time and I didn't need to turn on another device to do it because my PS3 uh, is much louder as the loudest thing in my Uh, entertainment stock but lately i've been watching tivo on the ps uh, tivo watching netflix on the ps3 just because the the ps3 netflix client actually works and i have to wait a year and a day for my queue to come up uh so i what i would like probably is when the apple tv3 comes out i will get it i'm hoping i will still have no fan and then i'll have a completely silent device through which i can watch netflix Hmm. i don't i don't think i'll ever buy i don't buy itunes movies or anything like that uh, the only time we bought any ones like that is for use in the plane. We put them on the iPods and let the kids watch movies on the plane. So that's our only use of iTunes. I'm uh, buying the digital versions. Most of the time I'm recording stuff from TV in HD or I'm watching Netflix streaming.
0: I have a question for you about gaming consoles. That's a whole other show, but yeah, go ahead. Um, but before, there was something I actually wanted to tell you about. I yeah? It's our first sponsor. It's Helpspot.com. See, most hosted help desk solutions, they start at uh, 49 bucks a month per user. That doesn't seem like a lot, but add that up. 600 bucks a year for a limited plan. Uh, HelpSpot, it, they're different. This is a help desk application. It has an owned license model. You buy it once, you own it forever. And a single user license starts at just $199. Bucks. This allows for unlimited tickets per agent. It's flexible. You download it, you run it yourself, you host it yourself, or you have it hosted. Uh, but, uh, you know, some people say, well, then 199 helps out. What do I need? To Here's the thing. If you have a business, if you're doing any kind of interaction with customers, whether you're, you're, you know, a lot of web hosting companies use this, but any kind of business that you have, if you're an iOS developer and you want to catch bugs, if you have a website and you want to wait for people to give you feedback, if you have a team of people who you all want to respond, you need something like this. And, and people would say, well, 199 bucks. You know, and so I, I, I said to these guys, I said, You got to do something awesome for listeners. And Ian, the guy who runs this, Ian Lansman, small business, runs it himself. He says, I've got, I've got this crazy deal I'm going to do. And he did it. And he shocked me, shocked me. Helpspot.com slash five by five, you get a hundred bucks off your initial purchase. It's ninety nine bucks for a single user license that you own. It's an amazing deal. Helpspot.com slash five by five. This will not last. So if you, if you care at all about your customers or your employees or yourself, do yourself a favor and, and, and go check this out. HelpSpot.com slash 5x5. Go check it out. Are you there right now, John? Are you reading? It? I am. I'm waiting for you
1: to ask me my uh, game console question.
0: It's 2011. It's September 23rd of 2011. And uh, I have not owned a game console. Okay. The last game console that we, we do have a Wii somewhere. We played it a, a little bit. And we got that Wii Fit thing and then immediately packed the whole thing up and put it away. So we didn't, you know, we played a few games. It was fun. Neat, neat, uh, neat thing. But what would you recommend uh, to somebody get? If they wanted to get a game console in 2011, September 23rd, what would you recommend? What should they go and get? Should they wait for the the new Xbox thing to come out? Should they get an old one? Should they get a PS3? Uh, What do you you think about this?
1: I'd have to do like an extensive take a history sort of in the,
0: the doc,
1: doctor sense and figure out like what, what is their history with games and what do they want to do with this new one because the answer changes based on their needs and their history with gaming. I so see. it's not it's not like a question where you say, well, I, I want to get a personal computer. What should I get? You should get a Mac. Like right. it's not that simple. It's not that easy. No. So if you want me to actually give you advice, you can tell me about your history and I can give you a recommendation. But I would say that the game consoles, the three game consoles, the three traditional game consoles are different enough now that what you pick really depends on your history with gaming and what you want out of the device. And I think you'd have to throw in the iPad and other iOS gaming devices in that mix as one of the possible recommendations based on whatever this person says about okay. gaming.
0: Okay. What, what would you say is, uh, is your favorite right now? I I don't have
1: a favorite console. I've been a big console fan for a long long time. My my um, emotional favorite, like if I have to pick, uh, you know, people people have their favorites for our generation it was it, whether you were Sega or Nintendo because right. that was the battle battle well, of we were in obviously middle Nintendo. In obviously. Yeah, obviously Nintendo. Obviously right. Nintendo obviously. Yes. Uh and then later it was PlayStation versus Nintendo and then it was Xbox versus PlayStation and so on and so forth. So uh, my allegiance has always been with Nintendo and continues to be emotionally speaking. It doesn't mean I think they've had the best product all the time. And it certainly doesn't mean that I agree with all their business decisions because they really screwed the pooch many times in mm-hmm. these uh, various console wars. Uh, but I like, I'm, I'm a big fan of their first party games. And with the exception of the, the team that made Ico and shadow of the Colossus on the PlayStation, no other team from any other vendor, including Bungie and halo has the same loyalty, uh, in my heart, as uh, as I have to uh, Miyamoto and all those people who made the uh, the first party Nintendo game, so I'm a Nintendo guy. But I have a PlayStation, a PlayStation PlayStation Three, PlayStation Two, a Wii, and a GameCube, and I've never had any of the Xbox things for reasons related to something that we I, I mentioned it on. I don't know. It was like show number three, and it was the first negative review that we got because people didn't like the fact that I was bringing up Hitler. So I won't bring it up again. Mm. But you can go back and listen to that show for the my ridiculous analogy about why I don't have uh, Xbox in my house. So, we ready for Windows 8?
0: Yeah, I think, I think
1: we should. Is there more to say? There is. I, I just want to... I mean, what I was doing last time was just going through my sort of stream of consciousness notes that I took while watching the video. It was the eight great traits of Metro apps, the poorly named, poorly titled video that really just explains the philosophy behind Metro. I didn't get through all of them, so I just want to finish them up. They're not really Great. organized in any way, except for sort of chronologically as we go along with the presentation. Super. Uh so in in Build and Analyze, Marco had some good points, and I have these in, in the beginning here. Uh first of all, I loved I loved how Metro and the Windows 8 thing is getting like other five by five hosts riled up about this. Because it showed I mean when when have you seen any kind of excitement about the content of something that Microsoft is doing. Not like the business strategy or the implications for the industry, but just like a product they made that's interesting enough for us to want to talk about it, right? Right. That that's that should be heartening for Microsoft. Like and the Alan Kay thing, uh, I think it was him who said, uh, the Macintosh is the first computer good enough to criticize. And people are always asking me, why don't you review Windows or talk about Windows stuff and stuff like that? And most of the time it's because I think it's not even worth criticizing, but Windows 8 is definitely worth criticizing. And I and, and, I, and I have been. Uh, or talking about criticizing is just like, why? It's worth thinking about analytically, uh, and interesting enough to engage your uh, attention. Uh, and his one of the points that he had that I really liked was how the Metro UI scales to a complicated application. Like because they didn't they didn't show that much. They showed like here's the world's simplest you know demo news reader application. You know, it's as if you you only saw Cocoa app that showed you like the currency converter example from way back when. You say, well, so how how do I use Coco to make like a complicated application? Like, you know, Photoshop. Or something. Could I even do that? You know, with Metro, they, they I think a lot of the question comes from the fact that the demo apps they showed you were intentionally simple. And they do want it to be simple like an iOS app, but you can see like a sophisticated iPad app, even something like the iPad Twitter app. Like, that's a pretty complicated application in terms of the things you can do with it and the different UI controls and the gestures like you can build up iOS UI to be pretty complicated. And that may be true of Metro too, but it's hard to tell from the demos because the demos are necessarily simple. And if you just look at those squares with a little text and a picture and you're like, yeah, but how do I make like a real, like a big honking application on that? And so that's an open question. Uh, I think it's, I, I don't, I don't condemn it for that because the demos have to be simple. You have to show here's how you make a simple application that shows a list of items or here's how you show a bunch of photos being displayed or a really simple email app. It's not their job to build, it's not their job yet to build a complicated application. Now the question is, is is Microsoft going to make, you know, the equivalent of pages on on the iPad, you know, Mm -hmm. lead into Word for Metro and show us, show us the way. How do you take a full featured desktop caliber application? and adapt it to this context, taking advantage of the things, you know, obviously you're not gonna port it wholesale and bring all the features, but how do you fit that in? That's kind of up to Microsoft to show everybody, but right now they're just kind of saying, here are the rules of this new universe and here are some simple examples within it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, to dig about dashboards. The, the risk of Metro is that it ends up being like dashboard. <laughs> like, I think it was mostly thinking like on, on PCs, on Windows yeah. 8 PCs. It's like, well, I've got my Windows 8 thing here, which looks like Windows 7, but with a few other little thingies. And then if I hit this little thing, this other thing comes up. that looks like Metro. And yeah, I looked at it a few times and then I just stopped going there. (laughs) Like dashboard. Yeah. Although I I am a dashboard fan. I use it constantly, but I can understand how people, if they don't ever find a use for it, it's out of sight and out of mind.
0: What do you use on dashboard?
1: At my home Mac, I have, let's look, uh, home Mac, I just have a bunch of clocks, stock ticker, calculator, uh, weather, calendar, and dictionary. Dictionary I use the most when I don't look up a word or figure out how it's spelled or whatever. Well, the dictionary, like Google, is better than the dictionary. If you, if you want to know how a word is spelled, put it into Google, because it will say, did you mean X? I love that. Love uh, that. If, if you want to know the definition, put it in the, the little dictionary uh, app. And, but and it worked. I actually use it as a dashboard. So this is a feature that I didn't think I would ever use. Remember, like, I don't know, was it 10.5? Was it Uh, I think maybe it was just a Safari release. They they had that web clips thing. Yes. You could sort of rubber band around (laughs) a section of a web page, make a dashboard widget out of it. And they showed like, look, I can rubber band around Garfield. And now every day when I go to this thing, I can see the current Garfield strip. (laughs) All right. Like, that's dumb. Uh, And later they refined it to not, (laughs) to not just rubber banding around stuff, but you, it would just do like the block region selection, you know, it here's this content block. Well, I I finally started using that at work because at work, we have tons of graphs and, uh, Uh, people care about server-side stuff, like Ganglia graphing, Cacti does similar things, and Graphite is another graphing app. And they're spread all over a whole bunch of different servers and a whole bunch of different web pages, and we have lots and lots of graphs. Uh, Now, I could, you know, have all those web pages open in tabs permanently and shuffle through them, but, like, a lot of them auto-refresh, and when they auto-refresh, especially Ganglia, it doesn't always scroll to the same position, so now you're at the top of the big screen full of 100 graphs. I'm like, I just want these seven graphs at this size... And that's what I want to see. So what I do is make a local HTML file and put in just the three or four graphs that I want. And rather than arranging those graphs in an HTML file and keeping a giant browser window open, I just do the open and dashboard thing and select each one of those graphs. And then I arrange the graphs on my little dashboard. So when I put my cursor into the corner, I see all the graphs that are relevant to me at the current time in the sizes that I want, arranged the way I want, auto-refreshing because they're derived from local HTML files with like a meta-refresh header in them that cycles through them. And it's great. It's way better than any solution that I've ever had for let me quickly look at how these servers are doing in these aspects and then get it out of my way you know because if you put it in a browser tab it gets buried underneath other stuff or it gets closed or you have to scroll around it's just a mess but the dashboard is so much it, it it is like a dashboard of you know they have these for, for like knocks and other uh, you know control centers where you need to see a bunch of stuff at once but this is this is one that's on your computer you know so obviously this is not a common problem that people have but if you work in server-side software I uh, highly recommend giving that a try.
0: All right, we're still go back to Windows 8. So Microsoft, uh, Microsoft Windows 8. Yes. So resuming
1: my notes, one of the things they said on the on the stage, this is the middle of the presentation. Sorry, listen, listen to the last episode and pretend it ends and this starts right here. Uh, they said every single pixel is for your app. It's so like every single pixel on the screen of, uh, I guess they're using tablets in this example. Right. Just for your app. There's no status bar. No chrome stuff. There's no other other things on the screen. Like you literally have from the upper left to the bottom right and just draw whatever you want on that thing and we will not mess with you, right? And, and that is, uh, as, as many other things that they've done in this presentation, is the antithesis of what Microsoft has ever done before because their entire history with both their applications and their operating system has been the addition of pains and windows and toolbars and widgets and just they're constantly adding crap like you've seen the humorous screenshots where they show like microsoft word with every single toolbar enabled and there's like all, enough room for four characters of text and the rest of the thing is just a giant ui and the ribbon thing was trying to address that so they put a bunch of tabs on their thing and rearranged the toolbar it's like a fancier different toolbar but you know a, a window where the vista had that sidebar thing and they have the, the quick bar and the taskbar and the taskbar can go to two levels in windows 95 and then they rearrange it in windows 7 and, they were constantly adding... Like That's how you measured progress in your operating system. What gigaw did they add to this application or to this operating system? That kind of gets back to my point at the end of the line review is that we reached the point where desktop operating systems aren't judged based on how many gigaws and panes and new things on the screen you can click they add. Now we're judging them by how much stuff do you remove. Not, not removing the interface only, but also removing concepts that were rooted in technology decisions that were decades old and now can be revisited. So, like mental clutter and concepts that you don't have to deal with anymore, remove them. So we're judged. it's like reversing the sequence. iOS obviously is the you know a huge reversal in that, but it got to start fresh. It didn't have to chop everything down one at a time. But I think Microsoft is now at that point with Windows too, where they're saying, "Let's not add. Let's stop adding crap." let's take things away and they've sort of done the iOS thing was like, let's take everything away there's no menu bar there's no menus there's no scroll bars there's no you know just remove everything start fresh and you get the entire screen right now it was kind of funny that Microsoft still couldn't resist adding crap like this this is the new philosophy <laughs> right and well obviously there's, there's Windows desktop hiding underneath it so that's their big out like you know, all the, you know you can click this thing and you're back to the Windows desktop well no,
0: wait, wait a minute I've, I've read some things uh, that have come out since our last show um to where we talked about this, that that have actually said that the Windows desktop, what we think of as, you know, all all of what we would see if you used a currently released version of Windows and probably everything prior, that that, what we think of as Windows today prior to Metro, that is actually not loaded and none of that code is loaded or exists or runs until or unless you launch that Windows desktop the, the aside from Metro in other words Metro is truly its own separate thing and and even the code isn't loaded for the traditional Windows desktop un, uh, unless you launch that so yeah, that, it, that, the Metro is not really a, the case as well so but Metro I mean, isn't like a shell on top of it or another an additional that, that, layer
1: that's why I was saying in the last show like they're more like siblings
0: okay and which
1: one gets launched first you know the other one isn't running but but I'm saying it's there like, it is so there. they didn't so they couldn't do what iOS did, which is there's no way to get macOS 10 on your iPad. Like right. you don't hit tap a button and they're used to the <laughs> fine, right? right? So that, that in typical Microsoft fashion they couldn't abandon it. But even within Metro, they could not resist adding a little widgety thing. And, and the fact that the fact that they added it on the side, like so uh, the the top and the bottom are for the application and the the left and the right side are for the system. I mean if you're looking at a tablet screen. Uh, so on the right side, they have this thing called charms, where if you swipe in from the right side this little slidey looks kind of like the Vista sidebar comes out with a bunch of icons. And that's, what's that? That's a gigaw. It's a pane with a bunch of stuff in it with little things, to, you know, even though every single pixel is for your app, they they love to add stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and if you think about Apple, Apple didn't do that. Like they resisted that as long as they could. They had to add something for multi-application switching. So now, you know, double tap on home, a thing slides up. But they didn't do that in version one. In version one, they're just like, This is it. tap on the icons, the thing launches. When you close it, it goes back. You have a bunch of icons. There's no folders. There's no things popping out of the side. There's no shelf. There's no tray. There's no notifications. There's no multi, you know, they really stripped it down and added back slowly. Now from day one, Microsoft is coming out with, well, you got your charms on the right hand side, Mm. right? That's a horrible name, by the way. (laughs) Charms. (laughs) I forget what's on the left side. Uh, but, but they did try to give the entire screen to the app. But that means there needs to be, if you're them the whole screen to the app, there needs to be some way to activate these things. Right? And when they were showing the demos at first, they were doing the, you just swipe in from the right side. This is, again, on a tablet. So swipe in from the right side and there's your charms or whatever you know, other things you can get from the t- swiping in from left and right. And so I said, oh, they must have touch sensors in the, wait for it, everybody. Should I say it the right way or the wrong way?
0: Uh, I like it when you say it the, the, the wrong way. I could try to think of it in a new way. <laughs> Accent on the first
1: name Bezel. <laughs> I come up with a new way every week. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. that They were adding touch sensors, you know, beneath the plastic trim of of the the tablets. And I'm like, oh, if you make a Windows 8 tablet, you must have to add those sensors. Who had that? Did the touchpad have that? Somebody, the, the pre certainly had that little swipe area. Yeah. On the bottom. And I think, I don't know if the touchpad, I didn't, I didn't buy a touchpad for 99 bucks. So I don't know if the touchpad had one, but I thought that was interesting. That they were, committing to like at an os level you have to have this touch area on the edge but my understanding that is not the case that they do do not require you to have any touch sensors anywhere except for on the screen and in fact what they're doing is taking a one pixel border of the entire screen and saying if you swipe across that border or something if you they're basically using the screen to figure out when you're swiping in from the, the top bottom left and right Someone in the chat room can correct me if they don't think that's the case, but my understanding from watching this demo is that you are not required to put touch sessions anywhere except for the screen and Windows 8 will figure out that you swiped in from the left or in from the top or in from the bottom to Mm. activate these things, which is a little bit touchy because you're wasting all the finger movement until you hit screen. And then it's got a sense that you're swiping in versus I simply placed my finger on on the far edge of the screen and moved. Like, what if you want to move something that's touching the edge of the screen and you happen to stick your finger... On the edge of the screen, and try to move the thing, and it thinks you swiped in from the the right. You know, I don't know. I'd have to try it. But my my being down on this technique comes from watching every presenter who who had to do Windows eight demos constantly trying to swipe in from the left, swipe in. like they're trying to look casual, but they have to keep pawing at the thing because it's not it's not taking their first activation, and that doesn't look good. Like when the iPhone was first demoed there was less of that fumbling. Like the person who was demoing it, I think it was Steve Jobs, it might have been somebody else, was not unsuccessful with, with a gesture. And these are not rare, obscure gestures like pinch and twist or any other weird thing like that. This is supposed to be the most, com- it's the equivalent of hitting the, com- the home key on, on an iOS device. Bring up the system UI, swipe in from the left or right side. And that's an essential feature for task switching and for other things that we'll get to in a little bit. So a really common gesture like that being awkward enough that the people who invented this thing are fumbling in a stage demo does not bode well for their decision to not require hardware buttons and not require touch sensors anywhere but the screen, you know. So that was that was disheartening to me. I like their idea of system UI and the side, like having having a system is good for Microsoft. Like we've come up with a system and this is what it is, and it's sensible and we think it will work, but their chosen implementation for those activation gestures, I think, is highly suspect. Uh so, sure, what else do we have? Oh, uh, this was already brought up, I think, in the previous show, but I had I had another note for it in my notes here of their constant avoiding of mentioning iOS or the iPad. You know, Windows-based, you know, etc. tablets. Or how many of you are, have rearranged icons on some system? Like, <laughs> it must have taken months of training for them to, you know, electric shock collars for them to not say iOS, iPad, or iPhone. But they managed to do it. Uh, so... Next one is the uh, landscape orientation. Uh, they, they decided that landscape orientation is the sort of the default. And they did all their testing based on people gripping it like a steering wheel, you know, like uh, gripping it on the sides with yeah. their thumbs poised over the thing. Mm-hmm. If, like holding, they, holding
0: it as if you would a, well, yeah, like you say, a steering wheel or a, or a Wii with the weird attachment on it.
1: Yeah, and yeah. this is the way they think what people will use the thing, and so they did all this. They were showing all these heat maps of like we had people with different size hands show where their thumbs could reach, and we made heat maps based on okay, everybody can reach here, and then a few people can reach there, and, and they tried to cluster their controls so people could reach them with their thumbs while they were doing, and they had the, the thumb keyboard, which of course the iOS has as well and iOS five with the split thing with the thumbs on the side. Uh, that's interesting to me because I don't, I don't see people using iPads like that and maybe because iPads aren't designed like that and so there's no reason for you to hold it in that manner and use your thumbs because the keyboard doesn't split yet In iOS 4 Uh, the controls aren't arranged like that people write iOS apps on the iPad not with the controls clustered around where your thumbs would be in landscape mode Uh, so it's hard, hard to tell what comes first you know but it'd be interesting to see when Windows 8 tablets come out Look, when you see people, I'm assuming someday you will see people in public with Windows 8 tablets. Microsoft really hopes you will someday. And when you see them, look to see if they're using it in landscape and if they're doing the thumb thing. I think that's not a very natural or comfortable way to use a tablet for a long period of time. And I think the two-hand engagement or even just one-hand engagement like that, it's more of a, com- like, it's more of a commitment to people, more of a physical commitment to use it like that. I think unless you're playing a game, when I see people using iPads, it's like relax. Like you're leaning back. Like they have the couches on the stage for the Apple keynote demos, where they demo the iPad. going I mean, just sit down on the couch. I'll put this on my lap, and then it sits on something. It rests on your lap, rests on a pillow, or it's propped up on something. And then you just you tap it with one hand, and then maybe you read, and then you move stuff around. Like it's not grip it with two hands like you're wrestling an alligator, and constantly <laughs> hold it with two hands. Or like like you're right. playing like you're playing Mario Kart with the Wii, where you got the steering wheel. <laughs> right. and you're gripping it with two. Like that's not the type of engagement I think about for a tablet. So I don't know how that is going to fly for them. But I mean, the proof's going to be in the pudding. We'll just, when you see people in public using a Windows tablet, see if they're using it like it. Because if they're not, all that concentration of Apple, of Apple, of Microsoft, uh, doing all that testing and trying to design the OS and their apps around the idea of people using it with their thumbs will have been misspent if people aren't using it that way and taking advantage of the work they've done. Uh, I think uh, a couple other shows already talked about the, the trying to reduce modes where they don't want to have like press and hold and it changes into a mode. They want to have, right. the you know, dragging the icons around, you drag it down. And, you know, I think it was Marco who already went up talked about how that's kind of BS because it depends on how you define mode. And kind of start are in a mode once you enter the swipe down phase. And as he pointed out, that is a very poor way it's not discoverable and it's complicated for what should be a simple operation, right? It's awkward. And even that's an example of the people on stage, on stage that would say, look, I'll show you how you can rearrange tiles. So you tap on a tile and pull down slightly and then it becomes sort of unseated and then you can drag it where you want, right? Because they can't just have it if you just abs- absent mindedly swipe and your tile goes flying. So they yeah. have to have some, you know, method to do it. So on iOS, it's, it's tap and hold and then they start doing the wiggle. And then once they're doing the wiggle, you're, you're clearly in, you're in the wiggle mode right? And you can pose <laughs> them and move it around and it's frustrating and annoying and we hate dragging the little wiggle things to the edge and stuff like that. We'll get to that in a second, but but it's a mode, right? Microsoft's saying, see, we don't want to have modes. We want to have this awkward gesture that you have to do to move something rather than have modes. And I don't know if that's the best move, uh, and I saw people in during the demos repeatedly have trouble rearranging tiles. Maybe it's because they're nervous, and they're rushed, and they want to they, they start moving the tile right away, but I think that's representative of users. They're like, they want to move this here, move that there, and if each time they have to initiate a move, they have to do some awkward gesture that's not natural to them that they keep misfiring on, they're going to be annoyed, and it's going to be frustrating. Uh, but the one neat thing they did have there was uh, they showed... Uh, they, were, they were making fun of when you're in wiggle mode on iOS and you want to bring an application from screen five on your phone to screen one. You drag it to the edge and then you wait. And then it shuffles a screen and then it pauses. And then it shuffles a screen and then it pauses. And then it goes. And then finally you get to screen one and you try to place it. And God forbid you miss that drag or it lands on some intermediate screen and all your icons get pushed off. And rearranging icons on, on iOS is annoying for that reason. Uh, so they said, let's, you know, we, we don't have that problem. We're going to take advantage of multi touch. So once you initiate the little pull down drag maneuver and you've got the thing under your finger and it's unseated from its, from its <laughs> spot. <laughs> you can take your other finger and flick, flick, flick the background along to get to the first screen, which is way more natural and makes sense on a big pad. It obviously doesn't make sense that much sense on a phone where you can't feel all those fingers on the screen, but on, but on a tablet, you want to be able to use two hands. Like, all right, I'll hold the icon with this hand, flick, 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 the background moves underneath it. And once we get to the screen I want, then I can drag it to where I want the thing to go rather than this is a good... We first person shooter analogy for people who already understand it, I'm not going to explain it further, but rather than drag your thing to the edge to change your viewpoint, have independent control of the thing that you're controlling, you know, the thing that you're manipulating and the the, the, where you're looking, where the background goes. You don't have to drag to the edge to make the thing turn uh, is the we analogy there. Uh, so I think that's very interesting. I think Apple should immediately copy that if they haven't already. Like put that in iOS 5 and the iPad. because Just, just steal it because it's a better idea than what they're doing now. Uh, they also showed what they called semantic zoom, which is another example of them trying to make up a term for something that I think is not that interesting. They were showing the tiles and they were saying, if you zoom way out, you can see your clusters of tiles as just icons, but as you zoom in, more detail comes. Like it doesn't just shrink the tile so that the text is unreadable. It has a a more abstracted representation it's basically a level of detail this game this this podcast is full of gaming analogies they reduce the level of detail on the item when you zoom out and so they say look we're changing the semantics because now like for example the calendar app when you zoom in you can see like the entire week and your current day and your next thing but when you zoom out you just maybe see a calendar thing that shows you what the current day is and you know whatever right like they change the appearance it's not just a shrunken version of it. i think that's a good idea and if you have a zoomable interface that's a good idea as well but and they were saying, it's like, say you see your little tile and you want to zoom in. And it's showing the week and you want to zoom in on a particular day. Like they were showing that you could with a zoom gesture, you could get more detail from one of these tiles. And they were showing it within applications as well. Like here we are looking at, you know, the, the full-blown calendar app and I'm looking at the month view and I want to look at a particular week or day. Well, I will just pinch zoom in on that week and it makes sense. You're getting closer, more detail, farther away, a less detail, broader view. That sounds good and the semantic name, semantic zoom name sounds good. But I again question the use of what for most people is an awkward gesture, that zoom pinch thing, for something as common as I want to see what I'm doing this week. People just want a single tap. Same thing with the mode stuff. Like the mode is annoying and locks you in, but it makes it so the simplest thing you can do, a single touch with one finger, can have different meanings. That's what the mode is there for. Like normally when you single tap an app, it launches. But in this mode, when you single tap and drag an app, you know, rather than making you learn a more complicated gesture to do a more complicated thing so that you don't have to have modes apple has chosen to and i think wisely in most cases have modes so that the simplest thing you can possibly do use a single finger to do a simple gesture of tapping or dragging with one finger that has different meaning that's what the modes are for so i don't think people want to use a calendar app that requires them to perform a pinch gesture to get more detail about a day they just want to tap on the freaking day because that's what people know how to do. And pinch gestures are really hard. I have trouble doing them. I find myself trying to pinch and it's not registering my pinch because I'm not moving my fingers away from each other or my fingernails hitting before the pad of my thumb. I don't even, you know, it's, it's an awkward gesture. And, and for other people, it's, it's, it's less discoverable. And it's just, it's just it's more annoying to pull off.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It doesn't feel as good as tapping. That's why the iPad feels so effortless. You're just like, the pad is in front of you, is on your lap. And you're just like, let me just take my finger here and tap there. And yes, now show me this, Mr. Pad. And how about that? And that's, that's a much nicer experience than now I will perform this contortion with my finger to get more detail. Even though it sounds good, like you're zooming in and zooming out, it's semantic zoom. So I am highly suspect of that. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to make your app like that. But I'm just saying this is what, this is what Microsoft is showing uh, about, you know, this is the way we think you should do things. Mouse and keyboard support. Actually, yeah. Okay, so the, on
0: on the topic of mouse and keyboard support, hold on. Let's uh, let's do our second sponsor. Get you know, All right. good idea. clear things out. It's, it's Rackspace. I've talked about Rackspace before. In fact, because uh, they've been sponsoring our shows for about a year, They're a great sponsor. And uh, over the course of this year, I've been hearing from uh, from from different people in the audience who email us to share their stories and and everything else. Uh, and and really, what they write in about typically is how Rackspace Cloud. Uh, how they use it to host their own websites and, and their own apps. People love the fanatical support that Rackspace offers. That's sort of what sets them apart from really anybody else, uh, anybody else out there. And uh, so I thought I would read one of these. I've read this one uh, on, on another show, but I like it. Uh, the guy's name, if he's a real, if this is his real name, is he claims to be Alex Blackie. But we'll give him the you know, benefit of the doubt. It's, a, it's really him. And here's what he writes. He says, I was with another shared hosting company, and I was really fed up uh, with the issues that they were from downtime to, to other issues. He said, one of my friends recommended Rackspace. I signed up. I had a full root access server up and running in five minutes. It cost me pennies. And all of my sites, including all my client sites, are now five times faster after moving to Rackspace. He says, I've only had to contact this aboard a couple times, but every time the live support had a helpful answer within just a few seconds, I don't think I'll ever have to move hosts again. And that's the thing. You don't realize how much of a pain it is to, to move around. And if you have a service that you know that can grow with you, expand with you, and do whatever you need, and it's affordable, and you can get a real person who understands what you're doing to give you help, that is the, uh, as you would say, John, the trifecta. So you can find out more by going to Rackspace.com slash 5 by 5 Go there, learn more about it, sign up, and, uh, and you'll be supporting this show by doing so. We, we, uh, we appreciate it. Rackspace.com slash 5 by 5 That's it.
1: It's interesting there that their letter has someone mentioning a full root access server, like they're speaking in the language of the people they want to do that, to use their service they're not speaking to people who don't know what that means, and so that's reassuring I think to experts, yeah, when they hear a hosting provider use in their advertising the lingo of their profession without equivocation without, right, without that, any apologies without without, without babying it down or trying to explain what it means or trying to get like they just they just want the people who know what they're doing because they know what they're doing you know what i mean that's good corporate communication all right uh, windows 8 mouse support uh so microsoft's message here was don't separate the mouse and the touch interfaces and what they mean by that is so you've got your touch interface it's supposed to look like what we showed you so far in this thing make your app like this right and then you have to have mouse support because that's what Windows 8 is all about—no compromises. Uh, so when you do that, don't add features that are only mouse accessible. Like, don't add right-click menus all over the place. Like, well, if you use touch, you have to do this, but if you happen to have a mouse, you can just right-click on this and do this. I said, no, don't, don't do that. You have to use, you have to use the mouse. I guess you have to use the mouse like a touch interface, or you have to use a touch interface like a mouse. They don't want you to add specific features that are custom that are custom for each inter, interface. I think they're trying to do that to avoid confusion and also to do the kind of Steve Jobs no arrow keys on the original Mac keyboard thing where they're going to force you to make a good touch interface and they're not going to let you have the out of well I don't have to make this available by touch because they can just use their mouse and right click like that was the, the no arrow keys on the original Mac was yeah well that's you know I don't have to make, I know this whole mouse thing they like it and everything, but I'm just going to make a keyboard interface and you can just use these arrow keys to move around. Then you don't have to use the mouse to place your cursor. In fact, I'm not even going to have arbitrary cursor placement support in my word processor. I'm just going to let you use the arrow keys. So they took the arrow keys off the keyboard. You must use the mouse. There's no, no other way to place the cursor. There's no other way to select text. Paradigm shift. Right. So they're trying to make users do what they want, which is make a good touch interface. But that also means that the mouse interface is going to be like, it's going to be like using a touch interface with a mouse. It's going to be like using the iOS simulator for developers who have done that or anyone who's played with it. it feels weird. It feels weird to have an iPhone or an iPad screen with a mouse cursor over where you're clicking on stuff. It's just, it's just weird. Uh, and I actually installed Windows 8 shortly after the podcast. Someone asked me if I was going to install uh, the Windows 8 developer release. And I, I didn't even think of that. I said, oh, was it free? Apparently it's free and it runs in VMware 4. Huh. So kudos to Microsoft. So I downloaded it and installed Windows 8 in VMware. Uh you have to tell VMware that it's Windows 7, but that's the only complication, but it but it launches and it runs, you know, reasonably well. Uh and then so there I am using Metro with a mouse. And it's weird. It is very weird and I don't give I don't know if this is just because it's an early beta or whatever, but I found it despite watching a 90-minute thing explaining how to use Metro, I could not for the life of me figure out how to perform many of the things they did with their fingers with my mouse.
0: And and for the record, you have used a mouse before.
1: Yes, but like Swipe in from the edge. Try pulling that off with a mouse cursor. First of all, especially in a, especially in a VM, because like normally your cursor hits the edge of the screen. But you know, unless you go full screen in the VM, and even when you do, unless you're making, I'm not, I didn't make the VM the full size of my 23 inch screen. Like performing the gestures that would be natural with your fingers with the mouse, I found it very difficult to activate the system you know, the charms and the system thing and stuff like that. Luckily, you can activate the per-application stuff, the stuff that comes in from the top or the bottom, just by hitting the Windows key, which I didn't even know until someone mentioned it. Uh, So there probably are keyboard or mouse ways to easily do what I wanted, but I couldn't discover them, and I I really tried. Uh, But the rest of it, you know, it performs and looks the way it did in the demo, uh, and I didn't have any crashes, and, uh, you know, I will continue to monitor it it and download the the latest beta-type things, but... Uh, the reason Microsoft is adamant on the no separate interfaces in addition to the making everybody make a good touch interface yeah. is that in their opinion, this is a direct, direct quote from the presentation. A screen without touch is a broken screen. Mm. They think every screen in the world will have touch in a few years. And I think they may be right. Like I remember when getting back to the gaming analogies, which apparently this show uh, that are inescapable in this show. When the Nintendo uh, DS came out, the original DS, the dual screen portable gaming system from Nintendo, and there's the screen on the top is just a regular screen, but the screen sort of horizontally below that is a touch screen. And around the same time, Microsoft had it was fielding the PSP, which was its portable gaming thing, which is basically like what we all remember the Atari Lynx being. But if you go back and look and actually look at an actual Atari Lynx, it was hideous. But the PSP is a thing you're holding in with two hands, like like Microsoft wants you to hold the tablet. And it's got a screen in the middle and you have controls on your thumb and buttons on your other thumb and you play your game and you look at your screen. And the DS was like this clamshell thing, like a mini laptop with two screens, one where the keyboard would be, but that's a touch screen and one on the top screen. And it was nonsensical. People do not understand what the hell you were going to do with that until they got one and then said, oh, I see, you can do all these interesting things with it. And now this, this was, before, I believe it was pre-IOS, chat room can correct me, but I believe that the Nintendo DS was way before uh, iOS was a glimmer in anybody's eye. So they were one of the first people to show you could use touch interfaces. And I remember thinking when I saw people with PSPs or when I saw Sony revising the PSP or putting out PSP games, I'm thinking, man, someone at Sony has got to be just crying bitter tears that they have launched a portable gaming platform without a touchscreen. Because once the, the, the DS came out, it was so obvious that like portable gaming devices have to have touchscreens and yours doesn't. You are doing it wrong. You are, you know, you have your hardware is wrong. You can't fix this with software. You want to sell this platform? You didn't put a touchscreen. It's like it's like shipping a computer without a mouse, which many PC vendors were doing. Remember <laughs> they had that like the laptops they had to give you that trackball that you oh, clip onto the side. Do you remember that abomination? Yeah. And like they didn't have pointing devices. They just had a screen and a keyboard. And you know, mouse. What do you need a mouse for in a laptop? So they had to have all these hard even. Even like after they realized they needed a pointing device, they would still sell you their old laptop with new innards with this clip-on trackball rolly thing because Apple had a trackball, on, you know, or or some other way to to sort of porting the pointing device onto their uh, laptop. Okay. I believe one of them was this is a, a way back thing. Do you remember Outbound Systems? Am I getting that right? Chat room. I don't know if anyone in the chat room is well, this What a, were they all about? They would buy Ma- Apple Macintosh hardware from Apple rip out the motherboards and stick them inside their own new portable cases. So they would take an SE-30 motherboard, jam it into their laptop case of their own making, and sell you a portable Macintosh, you know, clone, but not really a clone because they were using Apple motherboards. I think they were Australian. I think that's why I'm thinking they were called Outbound. But uh, I remember, I think this was them, that they had a novel pointing device where below the space bar, there was a tube. Maybe it was about the length of the space bar. Maybe it was full width. I don't remember. All right, that, here's uh, you, Wikipedia has something on this. That you would roll the tube, and when you rolled the tube, the cursor would open down. And when you slid your hand right and left on the tube, the cursor would go right and left. I have no idea what that pointing device is called. I'm only remember my only big memories of it are from like ads in MacWorld in like the the 80s and 90s. Someone in the chat room says, "Yes, it is Outbound." And someone actually remembers the tube. Uh, but anyway, yeah, <laughs> that's it. And that, that, that age of like shipping PC laptops without mouse-like pointing devices, that was embarrassing for the hardware vendors. In the same way, I think it was embarrassing for Sony to ship a portable gaming device without a touch screen in a world that had the DS in it. And now Microsoft is basically saying it's going to be embarrassing for everybody in a few years if you don't – whatever you sell, it has to have a touch screen on it because – Without having a touch screen, it's just it, it's a broken device. You, it's ridiculous, and I'm sure they hope that to be true because they want Windows 8 running on everything from your PC to your tablet. So Windows 8 has a touch interface. I guess that means they want, you know, Dell to sell 24-inch monitors with touch screens on them, right. so that when people use Metro. They can poke at their screen, but... Then this, is sort of,
0: this is sort of the attitude that, you know, Scotty had when, uh, when he went up to the computer, hello, computer, and then, you know, he, he had to pick up the, you know, it, oh, it doesn't recognize your voice, so he talks into the... Oh, I guess I have to talk into the, into the mouse. He talks into the mouse. And I'm, what? You don't talk into the mouse? Oh, keyboards. How quaint. Yeah. Do you remember this? I do remember it. Because you're a Trekkie.
1: Trekker? No. The reason I remember that is because I was from the generation... Uh, this is before you because you were a PC guy
0: first. I was not a PC guy first. Let's get this. Let's be clear about this. My first computer was an Apple II. What was your first Macintosh? My first Mac was a Mac SE. Uh, I don't know. Which, anyway, I, which I owned and had in, in my All right. There in my all right. House. So you
1: didn't, you didn't come that late. You missed the, the you know, 128.5, 12 and the plus. I used
0: them. I didn't own one. Okay. Anyway. When you say my those, first Mac, do you mean one I owned or when I used? Yeah. When you owned a Mac yep. SE.
1: But back in those days when Apple was the underdog, it was exciting for us Mac users whenever we saw an Apple product in pop culture, because that was sort of a vindication for us that we weren't crazy. Everyone else was using, you know, like, do you have a computer? And you'd have to say, yeah, but I, but it's a Mac, and they're like, oh, you can't play, you know, Auto Duel until they port it three years later and it's black and white and it's horrible. Uh, <laughs> so you you were like, I'm not crazy for using this thing; it actually is better. And so when we saw Macintoshes like, you know, on, on moonlighting or in the background of a movie or in Star Trek, it was exciting for us. We're like, yeah, that's, that's the computer that we'd like. See, we're not crazy. It exists. And other people have it. And uh, it would be in tons of Hollywood movies because Apple had this one guy, I forget what his name is, whose job it was to get sort of Apple product placement in popular culture. So Macintoshes were disproportionately represented on television shows and movies and commercials. Uh, in, like, I guess it was the late 80s, early 90s. And so that's why I remember that scene because it was exciting to see a Macintosh on a, on a big movie screen and the yeah. Star Trek movie, no less. Your favorite? That was, that was one with the whales. It
0: was, the, unfortunately, yes, it was
1: transparent aluminum. How can you not like the whale one? And if people who are anti-whale episodes, like, oh, Star Trek is too, you know, it's, it's too important and, and uh, culturally... and whale, Whales in hard, space? Whales serious in space. hard sci-fi. It was, it's basically a comedy. Like, it was a funny... It was making fun of itself. It was self-parody. And people say, well, that's not a proper Star Trek movie. But I guess it's sacrilegious if someone made a Star Wars movie that had that comedy angle. But at that point, the Star Trek movie franchise had been so dumped upon with crap that it was a breath of fresh air to at least get a competent self-deprecating comedy involving the rapidly aging crew of the Star Trek.
0: There, so, was a, there were aspects of that, but I think it was intended that the whales be taken seriously, and that was the problem. The
1: whole thing was a comedy. The whole thing, you know, I'm from Iowa, I
0: only work in outer space. It was it was,
1: it was a funny...
0: It was, yeah, it it was, was a was, funny she- movie, but the, the whales were one of the parts that were not meant to be funny.
1: So, you know, in in Star Trek, the series, they would have episodes that were kind of the the humor episodes and then there was the serious ones where you were battling for the future of the yeah. federation or whatever well sure. the
0: tribbles for example not meant to be taken too seriously exactly
1: this was a, this is the triple equivalent movie it's <laughs> just supposed to be silly and yes i know they wanted you to be excited about the whales but i, I the part with
0: the whales and the earth being destroyed was uh, serious the rest uh. of it there were jokes surrounding it but that was a that was time to roll up your sleeves and get to work four o'clock oh. in the morning courage
1: Let's look in the entire canon of Star Trek movies and decide where that falls ranking-wise, and I would say it's solidly mid to upper pack. Hmm. You may, I think people who don't like it... I don't are, dislike, they,
0: the, they, movie. They I I dislike the movie. I didn't say I dislike the movie. I'm just saying that... I
1: didn't like the whales.
0: I didn't like the whales. Right. I didn't, if, if they had done something else, whales in space, I don't know, it just didn't sit well with me. At the time, I think I was more forgiving. <laughs> Since then, I've... Soured on the movie a little bit. <laughs> oh, so so getting back to I'm just glad have... to talk with you about Star Trek. I'll take I'll take whatever I can get. Finally, so, we're talking Star Trek on the show. See how excited the listeners are about that. So <laughs> getting back to every
1: every screen having touch, and like me saying that does that mean they want Dell to put touch in their big desktop screen? I, I guess it does because they're trying to say that every screen is gonna have it. So they're gonna say Dell, you should do this because Windows 8 has a touch interface. But that comes back to Apple's experimentation with this idea of like making a touchscreen iMac and stuff like that that it's uncomfortable to have your hand up for that period of time never mind the the insane uh, OCD uh, destroying concept of someone intentionally touching your screen you know there are two kinds of this world people who touch their screens and people who do not want anyone to ever touch their screen you can guess which one I am and so now if you had a desktop uh, put aside the uncomfortableness of having your hand up and poking your screen if that's the way you have to use your computer, you're intentionally putting fingerprints all over your screen. Yeah. Obviously, we all get over it with the iPad. Our iPads are just covered with finger spoo, and somehow we somehow we survive. <laughs> like, uh, but I don't want to give up my nice fingerprint-free screen. And yes, I do agree with Apple that I think, conceptually, it seems like it would be tiring to poke at things on the screen like that but who knows i, I microsoft is all about having options and you know put the touchscreen on it if you never touch the screen fine but it's there if you need it and obviously for tablets it makes sense and that opens the whole door to convertible type devices i did a MacWorld article way back where i was talking about the idea of taking a macbook air and having it be able to either fold in on itself or fold backwards or slide away or something like that where when you use it like a macbook air it works like a macbook air and has a trackpad and a keyboard and the whole way but if you fold the keyboard and trackpad portion out of the way somehow, it behaves like a big, really, really fast iPad. And I was saying it would be x86-based because iOS apps already run on x86. They run on the simulator, obviously. It would need a touchscreen. And you would only use the touchscreen when it's in iPad mode, right? Uh, and then you would use the, the keyboard and the trackpad in the other mode. But it would be a touchscreen all the time. So I'm assuming Windows vendors will make something like this like a PC Ultrabook, you know, the, yeah. the MacBook Air type thing. Ultrabook. That is, that is also a Windows 8 tablet, and I'm sure there'll be 50 of these, and they'll be able to collapse and fold with varying degrees of success and stuff like that. And I, I said in the macro article, I didn't think Apple would do that because it's just too much, too weird for Apple. It's something the old Apple would do. Like the old Apple made the Duo dock, and the Duo where you'd shove... It was like a Mac, but it had the guts missing, and you would fold up your, your uh, PowerBook Duo and shove it inside there, and then you'd have a big full-fledged Mac Lots of interesting things are technically possible, but the Apple of today would say, just because we can do it, I don't know if we should. So I'm sure Apple experimented with this concept and is experimenting with this concept, as but they experimented with touchscreen iMacs and all sorts of other things, and thus far have decided they're not up to snuff. PC vendors are not so constrained by the thought process, I guess. <laughs> and they're not going to carefully consider whether it's a good idea to have a, a PC laptop that folds into a Metro tablet. They're just going to make them someone's going to make them because if they don't, someone else will and they're losing the money they could have been made from the suckers who will buy this thing and whether it's a good idea or not, the market will decide and so on. Uh, so it'll be interesting to look at that. But I, I mostly agree with Apple in concept that poking at your upright desktop computer screen is not a good idea and not going to be successful or comfortable but who knows, we'll see. Uh, so, oh, man, we're running short on time here and I still have like a screen full of stuff to go.
0: We might have to do bonus bonus episode. Maybe. Come out do with two, do, two episodes this week. Do you want to do one more
1: point or do you want to wrap it up?
0: Stack it up. You I, wanna... What's your one more point? Is this a five-minute point or a 20-minute point? I, who can say? Can you curtail it at about 10 minutes? I say we yeah, do Yeah, I think I, I can fit it in. All right. So
1: one of the things that Microsoft said was during the develop presentation was, if you want, as an application developer, you can target your app at just 11-inch tablets with 16 by 9 screens. And then they followed it up with, this is a direct quote, but you're not going to get as rich. Again, Margot brought this up. The Constantly telling people they're going to get rich. It's just kind of classless, I think. Uh, but but we get the point. You, you know, They're saying, if you make an app, they can only run on a very narrow portion of the possible world of Windows 8 devices. Like, it can't run on PCs, it, it can't run on 10-inch tablets, it can't run on 7-inch tablets. It can't run on 4 by 3 ratio tablets. It can only run on 11 and 16 by 9 tablets. You can do that, but you're limiting yourself. Now, the fact that they're letting you do that is like, come on in, fragmentation. The water's fine, right? Apple doesn't like doing that. Apple had to fragment. They said uh, iPad apps are different than iPhone apps. And you can run iPhone apps on the iPad, but they're ugly, and that's a transitional thing, and nobody should ever want to do it. But we have two screen sizes. There's a small one, and there's the big one. And we have two resolutions of the small one, but ignore that. It's like, if you do it on the small one, you should make your thing a retina display enabled because it'll make your app look better. But if you don't, it will still look okay. And then you have the big screen. They didn't say, you know, they're not encouraging people to. and you could do this if you wanted, like game developers do it occasionally. You can make your application only run on a 32 gigabyte iPhone 4. We love that. Apple is not inviting that. And they're not telling you not to do it because you won't get as rich. They're just not even opening that door. Mm. You know? Conceivably, you could submit a game that can only run on the iPhone 4. And I bet there are games that can only run on the high-end devices. Uh, But games are kind of a special case. They don't want you to make your to-do list application only run on a 32-gigabyte iPhone 4, right with a Retina display. Apple would probably reject that from the store. And they would say, yeah, just because you can do this, we we don't want to encourage that. Whereas Microsoft, as in all things, is going back to the old Microsoft and saying, yeah, you can target whatever you want. Just want to run tablets, just want to run this screen, that screen, you know, whatever. We, of course, want you to cover all sorts of devices, but it's perfectly possible to do this other thing. Uh, and I don't think Microsoft would reject an app that you did. Like They would just say, oh, let the market decide. You won't, that guy won't get as rich and it'll be fine. Uh, and, and Microsoft did go through the thing of like, okay, so say you, say you want to target a huge range of devices. Uh, and by the way, the minimum screen resolution for Windows 8 is 1024 by 768. Right. So there's not going, this is not, you know, they have Windows Phone 7. For, it's interesting that they decided that was the point, that was the cutoff point. Like, well, we can make one OS scale from 7-inch tablets all the way up to 40-inch giant desktop thing but we can't go down to three and a half inch we need a whole other ass for that like so they didn't try to make windows 8 scale the whole range they got windows phone 7 series whatever then that cuts off then you start at ten twenty four by 768 which i guess you could fit on a seven inch tablet or six inch it's a resolution limit not necessarily a size limit it's just up to the vendors to decide what size screen they want to make it that res but so they say like how do i make my applications span that range from 1024 by 768 to full desktop. They want you to make three sets of assets to cover the range of sizes. Whereas Apple, Apple asks for two sets of assets. They ask for like a, a 1X size and a 2X size, but it's a similar approach. Give us, a, you know, we would like you to give us three sets of assets or as Microsoft said, we would like you to use scalable graphics with SVG and Apple says, you know, PDFs where we can just scale them, you know, so your Apple look good at all different, excuse me, at all different resolutions. Uh, and, Portrait and landscape is another aspect where they wa- they want you to do landscape. That's required, but portrait is optional. Which is kind of, is that, I don't know if that's the opposite of the Apple thing. Apple, when you write an iOS application, you can choose whether you want to enable rotation, what you want to happen on rotation, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. But in the, in the guidelines, I believe, and I think they might reject this. They said your iPad app must work in both orientations. And I think if you tried to submit an app that didn't work in both orientations, they would probably reject you. I'm not sure if you have to support rotation like a whole different view in a different orientation. Now, this is a good question from Marco. What Should ask him in the next show what the current iOS rules are about rotation and orientation and how lenient Apple is about enforcing. But the guidelines are for your iPad app, it should work in both modes. Whereas Microsoft is saying landscape you have to do and portrait is optional, which is kind of weird. I, I don't think I've ever seen um, uh, iOS or iPad app that's like that. The only thing I think of is maybe like a movie player can you can you rotate Netflix? I don't know. I don't think I've tried recently. I'm pretty sure you can. For, for for playback, I can imagine them. You know, you wouldn't want it in portrait. But most apps, I think the default on iPad is is portrait, uh, and that's that's the way they expect it, you to use the thing. And then you go into landscape, you get this alternate mode. Maybe it's maybe it's just me applying my
0: prejudice. Who do you think,
1: do you think has it right? I I think landscape predominant. Can work. The my main rejection of Microsoft's thing is the idea that people are going to two hand grip it and use their thumbs. Uh, But hey, it's a differentiator, right? Maybe it will will breed a different class of applications, making landscape the default. Maybe they'll look different, behave
0: differently. I don't know. I'm trying the Netflix right now just uh, to see what they.
1: I think it'll flip around 360 if you do it upside down, but I don't know if it'll ever actually. I'm
0: going to try it. It's loading up Danny Phantom episode 49 and so this is on my iphone because my ipad is being used um it goes into landscape mode automatically and uh, in portrait mode it shows it sideways all
1: right so it doesn't doesn't rotate i mean as someone pointed out in the chat room games do that too like you know obviously you don't you don't have to make your game rotate you're going to make your game screen okay. and but as you mentioned flipping does.
0: it upside down does indeed cause it to go 360
1: yeah we only got like three more points left, but they're not going to fit in here. So maybe we'll do part of a follow-up show.
0: Okay. You don't want to do them. You're done. You're done.
1: Yeah, no, but the next point is contracts, and I think that's a long one.
0: Oh. That could be a whole show right there.
1: No, nah, not a whole show.
0: I'll get through this window eight stuff yet. I think it could be a whole show. Well, if you want to follow John on, uh, on Twitter, you can do that. Syracusa. There's no Z. S I R A C U S A, like the uh, the town in uh, in Italy. Have you been there? You have been to Syracusa? I have not, but my grandparents did go there several times. I believe. How cool is that?
1: I have a whole place named after you, and mentioned in The Godfather. Yeah, no, they do
0: say it in The Godfather, actually. They don't do?
1: they? Yeah, yeah.
0: Subtitled, so you know it's my name because it's spelled the right way. A uh, couple, a couple little little things we want to address. Uh, we have uh, mentioned here that we will be talking about um, Goodfellas, the movie Goodfellas. We received a lot of feedback about that. Things that we mu- absolutely must do, things we absolutely must not do. Uh, in in reference to that, we are going to do that though. We've been cleared to do that, so we will be having a show. It will not. It will not be an episode of Hypercritical necessarily, or or if it is, it will be a bonus episode. It will not replace. The existing week's episode, it will not, uh, it will not be tacked on to the end of that week's episode. It will be recorded on a different date and time and released as its own, as its own thing. Did, did I say that right, John?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be in the, the
0: hypercritical feed at all, and not at all. Yeah, and be its own thing. Maybe yes. it'll be a special five by five um, movie show. Maybe it'll be something that that we do with other hosts periodically. Who knows? You
1: could even make it an after dark. As far as I'm concerned.
0: Nah, that doesn't fit in there because I don't really publicize it.
1: Yeah, you're right. And you couldn't publicize it. Well, we anyone. could
0: curse. We could curse in this other one if we want if we make it a separate show. We a could curse. recording from the movie, you know. Yeah, so we'll make it an ex- we'll set it explicit and it'll be its own uh, its own show. You can curse. I've never heard you curse. I think yeah. I've never heard that. So I can't wait. That's reason enough to do a show. Sure. So we'll do that. So we are doing that. So you can stay tuned. We'll have update. We will update here about that show. Uh, that was the main update. That I wanted to do. I also wanted to to mention uh, for those who uh, who care about such things and and who get this show, we have a very fast turnaround time with getting these shows out. Thanks very much to Faith, uh, producer here for doing that. Uh, But uh, so if you if you happen to listen to this uh, today, Friday, earlier in the day, perhaps on your commute home, you should know that The Fringe comes back tonight. Season premiere, uh, season four is back tonight. You're going to be watching that, John. Let the DVR kick off for about 15, 20 minutes and hit play?
1: I'll probably, yeah. i course probably you watch will. it.
0: Of course you will. It's been too long. Your favorite Anatour returns for season four of The Fringe. Be talking about that next week for sure. Dedicate the whole show for that, I think. Do not think so. Okay. But that's it. You can go to 5x5.tv. And, and you know what? People have been rating the show. Thanks, uh, thanks very much for doing that. Some more ratings have come in. John, have you been following those reading? The pe-
1: people, have, I suggest last time that people click the helpful yes no
0: links. Yes, a lot of people My, have clicked like, yes. Yeah,
1: a lot of people have clicked. My idea though was to try to introduce some churn, so the top three reviews weren't still the top three, right? Right, but you just can't. It's the it's a self fulfilling prophecy. People see them first, and the reason they're at the top is because they are like nice reviews and well written, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And so, as the people go through clicking the yes no helpful, they also click yes helpful in the top view so the order has not changed in the first page but i, I do appreciate <laughs> that people are shuffling up from like the bottom of the pile because people are out there writing good reviews
0: yeah and they the never get seen and, they,
1: they, and they're getting ignored so i thank everyone who is clicking those links either by pressing no not helpful to burying the ones that you don't like or pressing yes to the ones that you do like
0: here's the thing if if it's not a five star review the appropriate action is to downvote it that's all i'm going to say
1: i'm I don't think that's an issue because anyone who's listening to the show and is going to go click on iTunes because of us is going to do it because they like the show. The, the, the reviews are overwhelmingly positive, but if you like a negative one, feel, you know, it's a I disagree fun. with you. All right. Well, Dan says don't click the negative ones, but I'm telling you to be true to yourself.
0: Be true to yourself, which by definition means downvoting the negative ones. All right. All right. So that's it then, John. Have a good week. You too.